You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Merry Christmas to y'all. It's a pleasure to greet y'all. So my name is Scott Mahan. I'm the director of 514 Student Ministries here at Providence. And uh, here at Providence, we have a simple vision. That is to make the gospel unignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe that they are the only way we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And today we're going to be continuing, or finishing rather, our Advent series, Tis the Season, where we uh, celebrate the love, joy, peace, and hope that came through Jesus' coming. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. And if you do not have a Bible this morning, there should be a black uh, hardcover Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a a gift from us to you this holiday season. So we're going to be, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And when you've gotten there, go ahead and please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with, uh, excuse me, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Uh, excuse me. And an angel of the Lord appeared around them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Excuse me. Lost my my page. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying, that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here and that you made us part of your Christmas and your family's Christmas. Like Scott said, we've spent the Advent season as a church really working through a small section of the scriptures, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, which is the angelic proclamation of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And in particular, we focused on, I think it's over here on the wall, a few of the virtues that are explicit in that passage, uh, namely hope and peace and joy, which all three of the angels exclaim that Jesus' birth will mean joy to the world and hope to the nations and peace to the earth. Now this morning, 
what I'd like to do is discuss uh, the entirety of Luke's account, verses 1 through 21. And in so doing, I want to highlight the chief virtue that's not explicitly stated, but it's obvious that it is the chief virtue, not just of the Christmas story, but of the life of Jesus, and that is the love of God. And so before we jump into this passage, because we do have a lot of verses to get through, I want to pray for us, and I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you so much just for the, the privilege that we have to gather together, that we can do so freely and without fear of retribution, that, my God, we can come before you and we can know and be confident that you hear us, not on the basis of our own merit, not because each and every one of us have walked perfectly and uprightly this week, but because of your son, Jesus, who has extended grace to us and called us to himself, that when we pray, thank you, God, we can know you hear us. And so we do ask this Christmas morning now that you would minister to each of us uniquely. Minister to us, God, because you know us better than we know ourselves. We ask that you would speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit and that we might be encouraged and admonished where necessary and strengthened where necessary, but that ultimately, my God, that you would be the good shepherd to us, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start by reading verses one through seven. Remember, this is prior to the angels showing up to the shepherds. This is Luke's account of the story of the birth of Christ. I want you to be thinking and, and listening for what it is that Luke's trying to communicate. I think there's a few things. So let's start in, the, in verse number one, chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is a decree from Caesar Augustus registering people for taxation in the kingdom and the dominion of Rome. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And that's a long sentence with a lot that we intuitively most likely know about the Christmas story, namely that Mary was a virgin and she was betrothed to Joseph. She was met in a dream by an angel and told that she was going to conceive a child of the Holy Spirit and have a baby. And then Joseph is met by the same angel and told not to divorce his betrothed. And here they are traveling at nine months pregnant to go to Bethlehem, which is the hometown or at least the origin town for Joseph because he is of the lineage of King David. Bethlehem being the city of David, he's going to get registered to pay his taxes, but his wife is nine months pregnant. So, just think of yourself in the RV on your way to go pay taxes at nine months pregnant through the snowy winter, okay? That's the kind of uh, national lampoons that the, you know, Joseph and Mary are on at this point. Let's continue. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, Jesus' birth is intriguing and it's not at all what we would expect. All of the Old Testament is leading up to this point. It's prophesying about this coming Messiah. The Old Testament's pointing to this moment where this child is going to be born and that this, this child is going to bring in a new kingdom and everyone's anticipating it. And then the story of Christmas really is not what you would imagine might happen, especially after reading amazing things like, let's say, Mount Sinai, where God shows up on a mountain in a cloud and fire and everything's very obvious. The children of Israel put their heads in the sand because God's so magnificent, you know. There's these kind of things in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we get this very humble story 
of Jesus' birth. Now, what are a few things that we see from just these first seven verses? I think Luke's trying to point out three things in particular. Number one, Luke wants us to know Jesus was a historical person. This is the argument that Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis had whenever they were friends and they called their little club the Inklings and they argued about whether or not Christianity was just a myth or, or it be true. Tolkien, of course, was a Christian and C.S. Lewis was at, at bare minimum um, an agnostic, most likely an atheist. He just didn't, he didn't understand why Tolkien would have to say that Christianity was true. It, it didn't have to be true. It was just a good story. And Lewis's point was, it's just like all the other stories of a dying and rising God. And that's the story of Christmas. And Tolkien's argument was, no, this is the myth that was actually true. It's the story that, yes, it's a great story. It's a story that changes us. And it's a story that grabs us, but it's the story that was true. It's the story upon which all other stories hang. And Luke wants us to know that this is not just a good story at Christmas. It's unlike all the Christmas movies we've all been watching for like last month, okay? They're all good movies, some of them better than others, but, um, but this story is a true story, and Luke wants us to know it as such. It stands apart from Santa Claus tales. It stands apart from lots of things because Christ is the central story of Christmas, He's not just a man, he's a man, he's a man who lived in the time of Caesar Augustus. He's a man who lived during a specific time where Caesar Augustus told the governor of Syria, Quirinius, to get out a registration amongst all people. There was a real taxation at a real time, in a real place, in a real dominion of a real kingdom. And Luke wants us to know that this is the historical Christ. Not only that, but he wants us to know the kind of man that Jesus was, that he was not just a poor man's son, he was not just a carpenter's son, but that carpenter just so happened to be of the lineage and of the household of the great King David. And then lastly, I think that Luke chapter two, verses one through seven, at their core, are ending with this verse seven to give you this kind of hook into the story. It's that, it's that moment at the beginning of a movie where something that you expect to happen happens in reverse. That's what verse seven is. You expect for something to happen and the opposite happens. You expect for God to make a miraculous way for Jesus to be born, I don't know, like in the palace. And instead, there's no room for him at the hotel and he ends up, Mary gives birth in a stall. There's no room for him in an inn. He's born in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now every Christmas includes at some level travel for people. And you could see this and nothing is, well, few things are more frustrating than travel. Some of you might really like travel. I try to avoid it like the plague. I think that flying coach currently as it stands should be illegal. It is wrong and it is abusive, okay? Especially for a large man like me. But when you travel over Christmas time, there's lots of things that can make it difficult. Uh, you can see movies about this. You know, we were watching Home Alone, of course, because my kids wanted to watch it 135 times. I don't know why, but just over and over and over again. We were just laughing about how they're running through the airport and, you know, better times, right? They weren't getting, you know, shaken down. But anyway, the whole travel scene at, at Home Alone when they wake up late and they're trying to get everything together. And, you know, that's, that's understandable. One thing that's not talked about a lot, though, is when you are the one that people are traveling to. And if you're a kid in particular, you might remember this, when the whole family's going to come to your house, you know you are about to be displaced out of your bed. You know, you're not on the, at least that's how I grew up. I know things are different now and kids are treated with much more respect. We didn't get no respect when I was kids, okay? If, they, if there was going to be people at our house, we were getting kicked out of the beds. That was just a given. And we were going to end up, you know, with animals of some sort, feeling closer to the Christ child in the barn. You know, you never know. In olden times, kings, when they traveled, 
they would send out emissaries months ahead of time, planning out their routes and talking to the people of a nice grand castle or home or mansion. Whoever owned that house, they'd send emissaries to say, the king's thinking of staying at your house. Will you receive him? And if they said that they were going to receive him, not only would everything change in that household for the next few months, everything in the whole town would change. People would know that if the king were coming to this house in this town, there was a monetary benefit to this. Because it's not just the king and the queen that show up. The king and the queen and all of his court show up. And then not just his court of princes and princesses and duchesses and dukes. and No, 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 not just them. They're servants and in the guards, and in the guards' lackeys, and all of their horses have to be put away. And this is a moneymaker. So the whole town would start to turn over. You got to receive the king. And it was pretty majestic. Whole towns would be turned around for the occasion, and when the king arrived, they'd be shouting. Trumpets would be blown. They're throwing flowers out, making sure that the king knows they're so excited with acclamations. He'd have that guy that would come and be the, you know, the regal announcer of the king's arrival. And in one sense, when you read the gospel story, when we read this story of Luke, we could say that absolutely none of that occurred with King Jesus. And isn't that the surprise? The king of kings, as we just sang. There was no fanfare. There's no messengers, emissaries to announce his arrival, no shouts of acclamation. Humbly, he's born in a stall. He was placed in an animal's feeding trough to poor parents, a poor carpenter's wife to a family just trying to make it to their town of origin to pay their taxes. And in this way, Jesus' family can be pretty relatable, right? <laughs> it's like just trying to pay their taxes. Things went awry. But then again, if we look more closely at the details of the Christmas story, there is this, this thinly veiled narrative beneath the surface that you're meant to catch. You're meant to catch it. It is for you to catch it. And if you don't see it, you miss the glories of Christmas. When you think about it, there were emissaries. There were heavenly messengers that foretold the arrival of the king. Angels appeared both to Mary and to Joseph. Not only to Mary and to Joseph, but to Elizabeth and Zechariah, the family members. There were even astrological signs in the heavens to announce across the world the arrival of the king of the Jews. You remember this with the Magi from the East who come from great lengths because they saw a star. There was even a political moment at this very point in history that God leveraged that forced Jesus' parents to travel from Nazareth where they lived to their current resident, from their current residence to their birthland in Bethlehem so that they might be registered. And in this registration, the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets that the king's birth would be in Bethlehem are fulfilled and that the prophetic lineage of the king himself would be from David and it would be documented in the registry of Rome. All of this is happening right beneath the surface. And still most interesting of all, as the king rides into town, the innkeeper has no space for him. The hotels don't have place for Mary. The Bible's silent about these details, like why it is that maybe they didn't have room. It just says that they turn him out because there is no room. But the speculation is that because Mary and Joseph are traveling at a time when the whole world would have been traveling, at least the Roman world at the time, because they're all trying to get to their hometowns in order to pay their taxes, the innkeeper would have had a pick of the litter on who he would allow to be in his hotel and who he would not. And how would you know who you'd let in and who would get out? Well, it's pretty simple. Who has the most money to pay for that room that night? And what we know about the Lord Jesus and his parents 
is that they did not have a lot of money. So it goes that most people believe Mary and Joseph are excluded despite Mary being nine months pregnant, despite her water breaking and being in labor, they're sent out because of their poverty. They couldn't pay the amount required. But I want to point out that's not really, that's the surface story. What's really happening, and it's not, it's not meant to be hidden from you. It's illusory, but it's meant for the humble to receive it. There's a glory that's happening here. John in his gospel, he's one of the writers that doesn't give the story of Jesus' birth in this way, but he does talk about Jesus' birth in chapter one. And I wanna read that. This is John chapter one, verses six through 13. Listen to what John says about the birth of Jesus. And he starts with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. In other words, John the Baptist was the emissary of the king. The one who said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was the one who came out before Jesus and said, get ready, the king's on the way. And hence he was born just a few months before Jesus. Now watch this, but Jesus, he was the true light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is very key. Listen to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Let me read that again. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. In other words, the whole world was created by this king, and when the king arrived, we didn't even recognize him. This is important New Testament theology. This is Paul saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we didn't, we didn't see the Savior for who he was. He wasn't meant to be hidden from us, but because of our own pride, our eyes were blinded. But it's not just the whole world. Listen, it's specific. Verse 11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, listen to this, not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came to a specific place, to his own people, to Israel. He came to the city of kings in Bethlehem. His people should have known, right? They should have remembered the scriptures. They shouldn't have needed wise men from the east, the magi, to come and tell them about a star in the heavens. They had the holy scriptures, and yet his own people did not receive him. The Bible tells us that when the magi show up to Jerusalem and tell the chief priest that the king of the Jews is born, the chief priests do what? They don't even go and see. They're uninterested. So what is he telling us here? What's the thinly veiled story? Well, it's twofold. One is the whole world here stands without excuse when the king of creation showed up, we all missed him. And yet, and yet, hear me, it's through the exclusion of Christ, through this story, Jesus being excluded from the end, that we get the welcome in. It's going to be through this exclusion of Christ. It's a, it's a picture of what's going to come at the cross, the forsakenness of the king and the welcome of us as children of God. This is the means through which Christ is going to welcome us all in. It's going to be through his exclusion. And it starts right here, right at the earliest stages. It's going to be in this moment that through Christ's alienation, you and I become children of God. Now, let's keep going because the story gets better. Then the shepherds enter in. Let's start in verse 8. In the same region, so they're in the Bethlehem region now, 
There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. As it turns out, there was a royal parade of sorts. It actually did happen. There was a choral festival gathering in the heavens, meeting the earth, announcing the arrival of the king of kings. A host of heavenly angels broke through the night in Bethlehem. And after this announcement, the king is born. They burst into song, glory to God and peace on earth with those whom God is pleased. The most stunning part of this story, if you can pick a part, is to whom this royal majesty was displayed. The parade didn't show up to Rome. The parade didn't show up to even Jerusalem, right? Would have been a, maybe a better. It shows, the parade of the king shows up to a field with a handful of dirty shepherds that are unnamed in the Bible, and they are met with the most glorious display of a kingly coronation. I want you to think of this. Maybe, I don't know if you have any friends that are more cultured than you. If you're like, no, I don't have that. Well, you're that friend that we're all depressed about being hanging out with. You know, we maybe have beverages that we like and they, they don't give us the, the sweet treatment about that. Or maybe you want to go to watch a movie at Christmas and they're more of a Mozart in the ballet, you know? Jesus here at Christmas in one of the most woeful, amazing, strong shows of power, rather than showing up to Rome and doing what every king might do, showing up to the kings of the day. And I need you to remember that this is exactly what the Old Testament says that God did in Egypt. He shows up to the greatest power, the Pharaoh, and he demolishes them with Moses' little staff. Then all of a sudden something happens in the New Testament. Jesus decides, who am I going to go show up to to announce this amazing moment? He shows up to these shepherds in the field. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an inversion, isn't it? Historians say, and, the, and there's a lot of uh, debate about this, but they said that a lot of great Roman generals, some Caesar, some say Caesar, some say Alexander the Great, the Grecian before him, that when they would come into the city after winning wars and triumphing over their, the armies, that the people would praise them. They'd throw, you know, they'd put wreaths on their head and they'd throw flowers out and they, they would just continue heaping praises on them, right? They'd have the trumpets out because the great generals have won a big battle. And the historians say that the Romans specifically would hire a servant to come behind the great generals and to whisper in their ear, remember, thou art merely a mortal. So that as they walked through the city, they wouldn't get so pompous and think, okay, you know, they wanted to maintain this idea of the Senate was the idea and they didn't want anyone to, you know, Julius Caesar it, which did happen. So they'd remind them. 
And when I read this passage, I couldn't help but think how absolutely asinine it would have been to any of the shepherds if you had told them that they needed someone to remind them that they were mere mortals. These guys would have thought it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Of course we are. Night and day, out in the fields, the Bible tells us they would have had wild animals threatening them constantly. So whether it be, I mean, this is the legit lions and tigers and bears, okay? Remember David saying that? I killed a lion and I killed a bear and I had to do it with my bare hands because they came after what? The sheep. And the shepherds were the ones who were supposed to do this. Just so you know, if you're a youngest kid in the room, usually it was the youngest boy who got sent out to deal with the shepherds. It was not the fun job. Like all the older brothers got to do, they got to go out to be military men or whatever. And the younger brother, guess what he got to do? Get out there and take care of them sheep, boy. And that's what his job was. That was David's job. He was the youngest brother. So he ended up taking care of the sheep. The idea that these guys would have needed to be reminded that even if those beasts didn't kill them, the weather itself could have killed them at any moment would have been ridiculous. They would have known this intuitively. Of course, we're just merely men. And of course, we're merely mortals. Now, why do I point this out? The more things that exist in your life and in my life that quell that humble spirit, the more likely we are to miss the glories of Christmas entirely. The more likely we are to listen to our own voices about us not being mere mortals, that maybe we'll never have to face those things, then the more likely we are to miss the glories of Christmas. To put it another way, the glories of Christ are always revealed to those who are humble enough to truly receive it. That's why the powerful of the day missed the glories of Christmas. The glory of Christmas is that irrespective of class, irrespective of wealth, irrespective of birth order, irrespective of regal lineage, irrespective of wisdom or knowledge or beauty, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And unless you recognize you're among them, you'll miss the glories of the birth of Jesus. If you're like the Pharisee and you say, thank you God that you didn't make me like one of these sinners then you'll miss the glories of Christmas. The shepherds didn't need to be told they needed a savior. They lived it all the time. Of course we do. It'd be wonderful if he showed up. Could you imagine if we, if, if we were here when he showed up? And those are the ones that Christ was announced to. And even greater still, these shepherds are not just, they're not just treated with this light show in the heavens. They are then the very first people other than the family members to be at the bedside of the king. Could you imagine that? Have you ever read the stories of whenever like kings have children, like a, like a son's born and an heir, how they treat that child and who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come in? Let me just tell you, it's not like, you know, walking into Walmart. People don't get to go see the king, especially the child. No one does. And how does Jesus treat this? The shepherds get to come in and be at his bedside. These guys that, you know, we've been in the COVID time. So these are the guys that you would have wanted the hand sanitizer on, you know? Some of, you, some of you moms that are really worried about your kids getting sick, these are not the guys. You know what I mean? After babies are just born, you're kind of like, well, some of you are like, hey, give me a few weeks. Some of you are like, give me a few years. It doesn't matter. You want to keep your kids safe. The shepherds show up to the king's bedside and they're welcomed there. What does it mean for us? It's the invitation of Christmas and it's not just for them. It's shouted through the ages to all of us. Come near to the Lord Jesus. Who can come near? Anyone can come near. All can come near. If the shepherds were welcome, then you're welcome. Peer into the eyes of the Savior. 
Believe in the Son of God and be saved. If you ever wonder why would God, the the all-powerful God of the universe, decide to manifest in the flesh as a child, as an infant, as weakness, it's because he delights in using the weak things of the world to confound the strong. How much of a flex is it that God says, I can come as a baby and no one will touch me. No one will harm me until I allow them to harm me. (laughs) They'll give them their hour in the power of darkness, but King Herod can send all of his men and he can massacre all the children under two years old and he will not touch my son. This is a massive flex of power from God in a humble child. Who can come? Any can come with a simple prerequisite. Have you been sufficiently wearied by the fallenness of this world and the fallenness of your own heart? Have you come to recognize that the world doesn't just need saving, you need saving? He draws those who are lowly and meek in heart to make them children of God because no one else will be drawn. Everyone else thinks they can be their own savior. But it's the lowly and the meek that draw near because they know they need one. Finally, I want to end with this. I want to end with Mary and something that the scriptures say here. It jumped out to me this week and I thought it was both interesting, important, and maybe a little funny. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This must have been a very difficult year for Mary, okay? It's been a a whirlwind of things that have gone on. Not only do crazy things keep happening to her, but random people keep coming up to her and telling her things about her child. If you're a mom in the room, if prophets and prophetesses keep showing up to the birth room telling you, you'd have been weirded out, okay? You'd have asked for no more visitors by now. Mary instead keeps treasuring these things in her heart. She's considering these things. I've given my wife probably for, I don't know, since the song maybe became popular, I want to start by saying I can be a cynical man. I need help, okay? I'm being sanctified. But I give my wife a hard time about certain Christian contemporary songs. I never do that to anyone else, just her. One of them is, please forgive me ahead of time, Mary, did you know? Okay, and I know that many of you love that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a good job of making sure you don't hurt me later because I'm going to say it's not bad. But I give her a hard time because my answer was, yes, the angels told her. How would she not know? I don't like this song because I'm like, well, God said, so, but hear me. I'm giving Mary a second chance here, okay? I'm giving the song a second chance. There's only some things that the angels told her. Some things the angels did not tell her, so she probably was at some level perplexed. She probably was struggling with understanding what it means. For instance, later on in this chapter, a man named Simeon is going to come to Mary and say to her, your son is going to do great and glorious things, save his people from their sins, and then there's going to be this little aside, this little line, and a sword will pierce your soul too. What does that mean? First of all, it's like, couldn't you just stick with the good side of the prophecy? You know? The joy of Christmas concludes with the pondering of the mother of the Lord. What does it all mean? Now, you and I, we're on the other side of this. We know exactly what all of these things mean because we have recorded for us what happened. Jesus will go on to do great things like no other man had ever done. He will heal the blind. He will walk on water. He'll cast out demons. He'll make the sick well. He'll cure the lepers. He'll raise dead people to life. 
He will command the sea and even the creatures in the sea at his word to obey him. But most prominently, he will give his life for the sins of the world. Jesus, this child, Mary's son, will submit himself to death on a cross. He will take humanity's place. He will absorb the penalty for sin that you and I deserved. And he will rise again three days later to extend eternal amnesty to everyone who trusts him. And in this moment, Mary, who is just getting pieces of that, looks into the eyes of a baby and thinks, what does it mean? That sword that will pierce Mary's soul will be that she will have to be at the foot of the cross as he gives up his life. Now, I think we would do well to mimic Mary this Christmas, to ponder all of these things that happened over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. You and I don't have to guess at some things. And perhaps maybe the most important thing that you and I do not have to guess about this morning is God's disposition toward us because of Christ. The love of God is manifested in the birth of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself from a heavenly throne to an earthly manger. Not to earthly royalty was his birth announced, no, to lowly shepherds. He came to the world he created and the world knew him not. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But the message from John is, but to everyone who will receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Listen to me, that sounds normal to you and me. At the time when John is writing that, there are no world religions that say anyone can come to God. There are gods of different nations, and they're specifically for those nations. Even Yahweh was the God of Israel, but John says when Christ was born, anyone, anyone, anyone who comes to him, he will not by any means cast out. This is unbelievable. It was earth-shattering, earth-shaking, so much so that I can say it right now, and you think it's normal. That's how earth-shaking it is because this message has gone to the ends of the earth. This morning, if you receive him, if you have received him, he gives you the right to be the children of God. You know what John says? Not because of your bloodline. Not because of who you were born to, your social class, your royalty. In fact, there's a new bloodline. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter anymore where you were born or who you were born to. It wasn't of the will of the flesh. It wasn't, it wasn't our own obedience, our own righteousness that could make us saved. None of us seated here, when we stand in a little bit to sing to Jesus, we're not singing because we were righteous enough to be able to be here this morning early while all of the sinners slept. You know, that's not why we're here. We're here because even though many of us, me included, me, at the, I'm the chiefest of the sinners that he welcomed us. That's why we're here because not on our own merit, not on our own schemes, not on our own creeds, were we welcomed, but because of Christ alone. And he did it, why? Well, the Bible tells us, and it doesn't make us guess, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament is, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It was from love that the Christmas story exists. That here, as Mary is pondering what is going to happen, his heavenly father knows from eternity past what will be happening soon. You are loved by God this morning. And it's not a disinterested love. God doesn't love you in a way where he says, I love you so I'll let you do your thing. No, it's a jealous love. He loves you so much that he sent his only son to come and rescue you from the troubles of this world. And it's my prayer that this Christmas, 
you would experience, receive and experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. If we would humble ourselves, recognize our need, and I mean our deep spiritual need this morning, then we can truly be met with the majesty of the incarnation, the full weight of the love of God in the Christmas story. I'm going to end with this quote. This is from, of course, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. As we think today of the birth of the Savior, let us aspire after a fresh birth of the Savior in our hearts. That as he has already formed in us the hope of glory, we may be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That we may go to the Bethlehem of our spiritual nativity and do our first works enjoy our first loves and feast with Jesus as we did in the holy, happy, heavenly day of our salvation. My prayer for you, if you aren't sure about knowing or loving Jesus, is that that day would be today for you because it is not on the basis of you being good enough, but how good he is. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this Christmas that the Christmas story is not just a cool story, a myth, but the true story that truly you really lived, Lord Jesus, a perfect life. You really died a substitutionary death and you really rose on the third day and you reign as king. As we take of your supper now, I pray that you would draw us in. Let us feast to return to our spiritual nativity of Bethlehem. Help us to spiritually peer into the eyes of our Savior. Draw us near to you now, we ask. And as we sing, may the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be linked, my God. I pray against condemnation or judgment for many of those under the sound of my voice, but instead draw us near to you with the loving truth of Christmas, the life, death, burial, resurrection of our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.